This week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour, my conversation with Dr. Lindsay Chervinsky about statues and monuments in America. Since 2015, more than 120 statues have been removed from their pedestals across the United States, particularly in the South. Is the movement to retire offensive monuments responsible or misguided? Who gets to decide? Who should be at the table? On what basis should we decide what to pluck down and what to keep in place but to contextualize? And what should we do with the statues we retire? Are vandalism and violence ever justifiable? Above all, what should we do about those two giants of the founding era, Thomas Jefferson and George Washington, both great men, both slaveholders? Should the Jefferson Memorial be demolished or just heavily revised? Can Stone Mountain in Georgia be defended as an important piece of American heritage? As they say on Facebook, it's complicated. Join us for all of that and more on this week's Thomas Jefferson Hour. Sunday at 11 Central, 10 Mountain, right here on Prairie Public. Welcome to Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Craig Blumenschein. News Director Dave Thompson, who lives and works in Bismarck, joins us for our weekly news rundown. Dave is going to give us the lowdown on everything happening in the North Dakota legislature and more. Dave, welcome back to Main Street. Thank you, Craig. Appreciate it. It looks to me, Dave, like what is on most people's minds always is money, and there's a budget forecast that's about ready to surface. What do you know? This is what I know about it. Next week, the the two legislative committees are going to meet as one joint committee, and they're going to hear a forecast from the state's forecasting consultant, which is Moody's, and then the other forecasting consultant the legislature hires – And what they'll do is they'll look at the two forecasts and split the difference and say, this is the forecast we're going to use as we make some spending decisions. There's a lot of spending decisions that are kind of waiting on that. Dave, in Wyoming, it seemed to me they had this group called the Consensus Revenue Estimating Group that essentially did the same thing. Mm -hmm. And they always bended conservative with their forecast for obvious reasons. They didn't want the legislature to overspend. But oftentimes they were significantly and substantially conservative on their forecast. Has that been the truth in North Dakota for the past? Not really because you have two different forecasting agencies. You know, they're both national agencies that do this type of thing. And what they do is there's one on the high side, one on the lower side. They basically meet in the middle. (laughs) Dave, do you have any feel for what the forecast may yield Oil, it seems to me, is still doing pretty well. Oil is still doing pretty well, but the net, the forecast agency that uh, the state hires, which is uh, basically the executive branch, is saying that sales tax is looking really good, $100 million over the original forecast. But the other tax types are maybe at par or maybe a little under par for what they forecast. Now, the legislature's uh, budget forecasting agency is basically saying, and I'm, I'm getting this from sources, is basically saying that all four tax types are up. So there's lots of money to spend. Times are going good. Yeah. We are flooding ourselves with money. <laughs> I use that to transition into our next topic, Dave. You've uh, talked about flooding recently on your newscasts. Right. It looks challenging for us. It does. As the, as the snow continues, now you've got uh, Red River Valley and the Cheyenne Valley in what could be significant flood stage now. A lot will depend on the the, the moisture going forward into flood season, but because of the extra snow and the the snowpack and the snow snow water content, it looks like we could see some, oh, I'd say significant flooding in the valley. Dave, a House committee is looking at a proposed state constitutional amendment that would change the term limit measure that voters passed just last December. What do you know about that? Okay, here's, the, here's what's happening. The initiative measure that was brought by U.S. Term Limits, a group called North Dakotans for Term Limits, would limit legislators to eight years in the state legislature. That's two terms. And also the governor would be limited to two terms. What uh, Representative Jim Casper has introduced, and Jim Casper from Fargo, he said let's expand that to 12 years, but it's 12 years per house. And also, it'll be 12 years for the governor, and any other elected official in the executive branch would be term limited to 12 years. He really does not like term limits, and he said this might be a way to get it before the Supreme Court. And here's, here's why. The initiated measure has a phrase in there that says the legislature shall not 
do anything to change this measure. It is only by the vote of the people. Well, there's another uh, part of the Constitution that Jim Casper says is still valid, and it basically says the legislature can propose things. And he said it was not canceled out by the new Article 15. The people who support the Article 15 said, yes, it was, so it may end up in court again. One of the arguments that he brought forward, too, was there are younger legislators, one as young as 18, who essentially would be done with his ability to contribute to the North Dakota legislature at age 26. And Mm. he thought that just wasn't right. Right. And there is some feeling that it takes new legislators a little while to get used to the process, to get used to the way things happen. And then it'll take a while for them to have any opportunity to chair the committees. So there's a little learning curve there. So that's one argument that's made. And what I found also interesting is that the other argument from some of the legislators on that committee saying that they had heard from the group U.S. Term Limits and they were looking for support for a term limit Congress measure. And then a few of them said, well, you're not going to term limit the legislature. And they said no. But here in a few weeks, they said they would do it. Now, this this is hearsay, of course. Sure. And what we passed is a term limit on legislature and on the governor. We can't do a constitutional term limit measure for Congress because they're federal offices. So they're talking about doing an Article 5 convention for that, but that's been kind of shot down for the moment. Sure. Let's talk about money some more. Uh, A new North Dakota State University study says that North Dakota's oil industry accounts for more than $42 billion Mm -hmm. in gross business volume and that that is more stable today because the economic footprint is related to production. Right. And that's because when you had drillers, you had roughnecks come in. They were coming in from Texas and Oklahoma, and that's what they would do. They'd drill drill a hole and go back to another job. Well, production people are more stable. They bring families with them. The families have children that go into the schools. So it all is a nice economic effect. Uh, And the oil industry is saying that the Bakken play, which is a shale play, is now a more mature play and concentrating more on production than exploration. That bodes well, though, for future dollars coming into the state. It, It is stable dollars at this point. And in the oil field industry, too, the McKenzie County oil field name change was approved by the State Industrial Commission. I didn't realize oil fields were named, quite frankly. Yeah, in and North Dakota, they use, they use geographical names. And so, tell us more about this name change. Well, this name change, it had to do with what is called Squaw Creek. Now, as you know, the Interior Department is trying to remove names like Squaw because of their racist overtones. So the um, Department of Mineral Resources has renamed it to a butte that is in that region, and they're, they're using the name of the butte to now designate that oil field. Mm-hmm. Dave, uh, legislative majority leaders say now that the state worker retirement plan will probably be one of the last issues to do, be decided this session. First, what is taking them so long? Um, the issues are clear. The costs are, are relatively known. Mm-hmm. Is, is this one where um, differences or public opinion is impacting decisions? Well, it's actually differences within the House and Senate. The House backs the idea of closing the defined benefit plan and moving new hires into a defined contribution plan. The Senate it doesn't want to go that far. They want to make the defined uh, contribution plan an option, but they want to keep the defined benefit plan because they say that's a that's a way to attract workers. So the Senate's on one side, the House is on another side, and I the prediction is it's going to be leadership and the appropriations committee chairs that are going to make up the conference committee that's going to hammer out what they come out with. What do you think might happen here? What could happen? I think there's a lot of support for a defined benefit plan. And uh, state agencies are trying to convince the legislators that, hey, we're fighting over employees with the private sector. The private sector pays more. But having defined benefit when people retire uh, promotes longevity in state government service. 
and also is a nice little perk that say, hey, you sign up with us, you're going to have a defined benefit when you come to the end of your work life. The people who support the defined contribution plans say, well, the thing is they're not going to stay around because there's a lot more movement, a lot more mobility. And you take a defined, a defined contribution plan, it's portable, and you can take it with you to another employer. So that is going to be what's going to be hammered out. Pensions versus IRAs. Correct. Dave, the next topic. Um, state lawmakers are still digesting and discussing bills targeting libraries and now private bookstores. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting topic. It's gotten as much public interest, I think, as any in the legislature this year. Would you agree? Absolutely. And right now, next week, the bills are going to be heard in the opposite House. One was a House bill, one was a Senate bill. So now House bill will be heard in the Senate committee. Senate bill will be heard in the House committee, and that's going to happen next week. There is a growing uh, protest from not only libraries and booksellers, but people who patronize libraries and booksellers. They don't like this. And they say, you know, if you are worried about certain books being on shelves, well, be a parent and say your kids can't read those things. So that's one argument. Mm-hmm. What else are they saying? Because this is an issue that is, it's really a, the hot button issue of the session in my mind. It is one of the hot buttons, yes. And do you think that public um, discourse about this is having an impact on how the legislature may choose to either act or maybe study or maybe not do anything about this issue? Now, it might be having an impact. You had several what they call read-in protests at libraries around the state. Bismarck Veteran Memorial Library had one. There was one at the Minot Library. And I believe there is one scheduled for Fargo's library. Am I, I think I'm correct about that. And these are where they get together on the library steps and they take about a half hour and do a silent protest just by reading books. So it's interesting. They're really pulling out all the stops to try to stop this. I wonder how this coincides with what is also available on Netflix, Dave, for example. That's true, and that's, that's an argument. Yeah, you, an argument, hey, you're worried about books. Well, your child can go online, get it on Netflix, or get it somewhere else. Dave, give us a sense on what's left then for the legislature. Are you now in the home stretch, not quite in the home stretch? Do you see a light at the end of the tunnel? I start to see a light at the end of the tunnel because once the revenue forecast is out, well, then spending decisions are going to start coming together. It is interesting, and Craig, I don't know if this was way in Wyoming, but in North Dakota's legislature for the last several years, it's been the House that has been the one that's been cutting budgets, and the Senate's been restoring it. It's the absolute opposite this time. The Senate's been cutting budgets and the House is restoring it, which is, I think, an interesting dynamic. Sure, sure. What fireworks are out there, Dave, that really kind of concern you a little bit here in the last couple weeks of the legislature? Well, I think the idea of, you know, these transgender bills, that will be a, a still a hot issue and some fireworks on that. There's also bills that are trying to rein in the state auditor. Uh, some of the things that he does because he's not directly funded from state funds. His funding comes from doing audits of agencies or, you know, local governments. And there's been some complaint that, you know, he's maybe not doing it right or maybe overcharging local governments like local ambulance services for these audits. So there's going to be a little bit more of an argument on that. Uh, I think that's one of the big issues. But The one issue or the one bill that is almost always the last bill of the session is the OMB bill because the OMB becomes a catch-all for things that they say, oh, we need to put some money here, we need to put some money there, that type of thing. So watch that one carefully too. This is also a time when the legislature looks a little bit forward and decides what's worthy of study in an interim. That's correct. Any topics that are really Um, going to come to the forefront in this interim two-year period? Yeah, I think there could be a study of how property taxes are structured. And I really should mention that because this is going to be a real issue because leaders are saying, let's put the property tax relief and the income tax relief into one measure. And there's going to be a little bit of tug and pull over what's going to be in that measure. 
Dave Thompson, he works hard to cover the legislature in Bismarck. Dave, when will the legislature end? I don't think they'll use all of their allocated days. Right, and I've been asking a lot of legislators where they think. They want to save maybe four to five days in case they have to come back and take care of any governor's vetoes. Or if something major should happen, if we have another COVID-19 outbreak or something like that, and they need to meet, then they don't have to have the governor call a special session. Prairie Public's News Director Dave Thompson. He joins us for our weekly news rundown. Dave, thank you very much for joining us again on Main Street. You're very welcome, Craig. Coming up next, a preview of the Great American Folk Show. Support is provided by Drs. Kirk Coyer and Phil Sondral of Urgent Med, providing personalized walk-in medical care for all ages, seven days a week in South Fargo. Urgent Med, where urgent care doesn't feel like urgent care. Next time on the New Yorker Radio Hour, why do leaders on the right feel that trans people represent some kind of existential threat? It's incredibly effective to say to your audience, I'll take you back to a time where you will not fear that your child will come home from school and say that they're trans. I'm joined by Masha Gessen next time on the New Yorker Radio Hour. That's coming up tomorrow at 3 Central, 2 Mountain, right here on Prairie Public. This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Craig Blumenschein. Tomorrow at 5 on the Great American Folk Show, it'll feature musicians Joanna Samuels, singer Kinky Friedman, writer Liz Blood, and folk duo Jocelyn and Don. Plus, as we hear in this excerpt, there's a piece with Summer Peterson, chef at Birnbaum's. We'll learn how to make a great stew. Here's host Tom Brousseau. Summer Peterson is a chef in Fargo, North Dakota. She joins the show in just a moment to take you into her kitchen and share a recipe that is near and dear to her heart and be prepared to be hungry. She graduated with a degree in culinary arts from North Dakota State College of Science in Wapiton, North Dakota in 2020. And I thought this was really cool. An assignment of hers at school was to create a menu but not just any menu. It had to be North Dakota-influenced. So she thought about it, and she came up with this great item, duck pho or duck pho. Ducks, of course, are big hunting and eating in the region. She sought them out from local sportsmen. Seasoned tender duck meat in the soup, and the broth was made from the bones. And beets. Also, a big part of North Dakota's identity, she made into little spirals and she put into the broth in place of noodles. It was a creative dish. It was savory. It was a big success. And perhaps it's what started her dream of one day opening up her own restaurant, which she wants to call Northern Comfort, a little play on Southern Comfort. Well, the way her dish is tantalized will no doubt guarantee that she'll accomplish everything she sets out to do. As I said, be prepared to get hungry. Here is Summer Peterson with Mom's Beef Stew. a kid and I'd wake up in the morning and see that my mom put out the crock pot, I knew she was making beef stew. And I would be so excited. It was my favorite. Both my parents worked, so most of the time dad would bring home pizza or my mom would spruce up Kraft mac and cheese. But this was one of the meals that felt a little more special than the rest. It would be ready by the time we all got home in the evening and the house would be filled with the most inviting, warm smell. It was the perfect meal after a long day. So when I entered the culinary world, I would always find myself going back to that nostalgic family meal, but I could never get it exactly how it would taste when my mom would make it. But I've gotten really close, so here's how I do it. Before you start cooking, make sure you have your vegetables cut up and ready on the side for when you need them. Medium dice two onions, mince five garlic cloves, chop up five to six carrots, seven celery stalks, and three russet potatoes. Go ahead and chop them a little chunky. They don't need to look pretty. Now we're going to take two to three pounds of chuck roast. Cut it up into equal-sized cubes and season them with salt. 
We're not going to add pepper yet because it can burn while we're searing our beef. Now toss all of the pieces in flour. Now add oil to a Dutch oven, enough to coat the bottom of the pan, and bring up the heat to about medium-high. The oil is ready when you can hear it sizzle as you add your meat to it. Just like that. Add half of your cubes of meat to the pot. We're doing half so you don't crowd the pan and each piece gets its own space. Turn each piece so that all sides get a nice crust. Take your first half of cut up roast out of the pan and sear the other half. Now repeat. And remember, color equals flavor, so make sure there's color on all sides of the pieces. Once your second half of meat is done, take everything out of the pot. You're going to have this empty pan with lots of brown bits on the bottom. Add your diced onion to all that flavor and move them around in the fat that the beef left behind. Cook your onions until they're translucent and then add your minced garlic. Now pour about a quarter cup of red wine over the onions and scrape the bottom of the pot with your wooden spoon to loosen up all of the brown bits and then throw in your celery and carrots. Let them cook for about three to five minutes and then toss in your rosemary and thyme. You'll start to smell the herbs after a minute or two and then add your potatoes to the party. Remember to season everything you throw into the pot. That means add a little salt in with every new vegetable that you add to the pot. Now pour in some vegetable or beef stock until everything is covered. Add back in your meat and turn your flame up to high until the liquid is simmering. Then we're going to let it simmer for about 20 minutes until all the vegetables are toothy or al dente. Use a slotted spoon to take out all of the vegetables. We're going to set them aside for the next part. We don't want them to overcook and we want to keep a bite to them. So while they're in a bowl, drizzle some honey over top and mix it in with the vegetables. You can measure to your heart's content or maybe about a quarter cup of honey. Now with just the meat and the broth in the pot, let it simmer and cover the pot so that the lid is slightly ajar and we're going to braise the meat until it's falling apart. That could take up to about an hour or an hour and a half. Then once your meat is to the desired tenderness, take the lid off and let the broth reduce until your liquid is thickened a bit. You can dip a spoon into the pot and if the broth sticks to your spoon, it's ready. And then you can add all of your vegetables back to the pot. Taste everything while it's together. Season with some pepper or maybe a splash of sherry vinegar. Um, red wine vinegar would be good too. I recommend getting some fluffy bread and spreading some butter on it to serve with your stew. Um, this process is relaxing and in the end so rewarding. This meal has always fed my soul and put me straight to bed. I hope you try it out and see what I mean. Thank you. That was Summer Peterson, and you can hear the Great American Folk Show tomorrow at 5. Coming up, Natural North Dakota, but first, this news. For Prairie Public, I'm Danielle Webster. Next week, House and Senate Appropriations Committees will get a look at the new budget forecast from both Moody's Analytics and S&P Global. That forecast will help guide spending decisions. One item will be raises for state employees. Senate Appropriations Committee Chairman Brad Beckett of Williston says the legislature has adopted a plan that is placeholder until the new forecasts come in. What we're doing is we're looking at Um, 4% the first year, 4% the second year. The governor recommended 6% the first year and 4% the second. We just felt until we get our second forecast, we should at least let them know we're thinking about them with the 4 and 4, with the idea we can go up to maybe 6 and 4. Beckett says going to a 6 and 4 plan would likely cost another $20 million. If we see increases in the forecast that's coming up next week, I think the $20 million is way more doable than not. The forecast will be presented Tuesday and Wednesday. 
Republicans in the Minnesota legislature are proposing a series of measures they say will reduce crime. Crimes, or excuse me, the bills include increased penalties for repeat violent offenders, as well as those who engage in carjacking and the sale or possession of fentanyl. The bills would also increase police training and retention benefits and require public reporting of judges' sentencing decisions. Maple Grove's GOP Senator Warren Warren Limmer says these proposals would make Minnesota safer. Perhaps most importantly, these bills will actually do something to stop the crime with tougher penalties, longer sentences for repeat violent offenders who just simply will not obey the law. Because of DFL control, the measures could have a tough time making it through the legislature. And the National Weather Service has extended the blizzard warning for much of central North Dakota and also upped the potential snow total. The warning now extends from midnight to central time, 4 p.m. on Sunday. Uh, James Telkin is with the National Weather Service office in Bismarck. Well, the main reason for that is because there's going to be a lull in the winds tomorrow, Saturday. Um, so conditions are actually going to improve a lot during the day overall, but then the winds are going to pick up again you know, tomorrow evening and then you'll see blizzard conditions again. So we decided to extend the blizzard warning because, you know, the wall might not be as long as it, as it looks or, you know, it's hard to say exactly when it'll be. So we just took the blizzard warning through the entire event. Telkin says in that warned area, the potential for uh, snow totals has been increased to 4 to 10 inches. For northwest North Dakota, the blizzard warning ends at noon on Saturday and is replaced with a winter weather advisory from noon on Saturday until 10 a.m. Sunday. Four to nine inches are expected there. For Prairie Public, I'm Danielle Webster. I was wondering why they say aces and eights are a dead man's hand when you're playing cards because I've always played cards and I never died when I had that hand. Join us this week on Away With Words. When I travel and I hear the local story from the tour guides, oh, this is the source of this word. It comes from our town. I never believe them. That's Away With Words, Saturday at 9 Central, 8 Mountain, here on Prairie Public. This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg. And as you are out walking around, there's more to hear than just the crunch of snow under the feet. As we get closer and closer to what is at least technically spring, we start to hear more and more birds. Here is biologist Chuck Laura with Natural North Dakota on Owls. Spring might seem a ways away yet, but it might surprise you that great horned owls are probably already nesting near you. I was looking at Robert Stewart's Breeding Birds of North Dakota from 1975 recently. He notes that great horned owls lay claim to an old hawk or crow nest and begin laying eggs as early as late February. I suspect most everyone's familiar with great horned owls. They're perhaps our most commonly observed owl. There are, however, several other owls that nest in North Dakota. Although uncommon, eastern screech owls are documented nesters in the state. They're cavity nesters and may have active nests by mid-March. And the more common short-eared owls may be observed over much of the state. They're ground nesters and will begin their breeding season around early April. Burrowing owls are those small, long-legged owls that are occasionally observed on the ground near their nesting sites in abandoned burrows of prairie dogs, ground squirrels, or dens of other mammals such as badgers or fox. There are scattered records of them nesting in most counties across the state. Their breeding season will begin around mid-May. Long-eared owls, noticeably smaller than great horned owls but with distinctly long ears, are uncommon to rare in the state. Stewart cites nests documented for Ward, Benson, McHenry, Nelson, and Ramsey counties. They lay claim to an old crow, hawk, or magpie nest and begin nesting in late April or early May. Stewart notes that there are no known nesting records for barred owls, but he has little doubt that they nest in the state. However, the North Dakota Birding Society lists them as nesting in the state all west of North Dakota Highway 281, and Stewart listed the saw-wet owl nesting as hypothetical, but more recently the North Dakota Birding Society has them listed as nesting. They also list barn owls as nesting in North Dakota. Other owls that have been observed in the state include the snowy owl, great gray, and northern hawk owl. If you're interested in the owls or other birds, I've put a link to Stewart's Breeding Birds of North Dakota online. 
and the North Dakota Birding Society's webpage and eBird. You can access them at prairiepublic.org. I'm Chuck Lara. Natural North Dakota is supported in part by the NDSU Central Grasslands Research Extension Center. You can get Natural North Dakota essays delivered to your inbox every week. Sign up for the email newsletter at prairiepublic.org. Pop star Callie Uchis wanted to write about love in all its different dimensions. You know, the times where you're at peace, the times where you're in pieces. That's a wonderful phrase, the times you're at peace, the times you're in pieces. I don't know, just came up with it off the top. <laughs> the singer-songwriter on her new album, Red Moon in Venus. And all the news, Saturday and weekend edition from NPR News. Starting at 7 a.m. Central, right here on Prairie Public. When you hear arts programming here on Prairie Public, know that it is supported in part by the North Dakota Council on the Arts, and we thank them. When you hear the fanfare, that means it's time to go to the movies with our resident movie critic, Matt Olin. Matt, the movie After Sun. Yeah, so one Oscar nomination for the lead actor, Paul Mescal, who plays a father in the movie to an 11-year-old girl. This is first-time director Charlotte Wells' first movie, and it is really an interesting movie that kind of sneaks up on you. Uh, it's it's definitely in my top 10 for the year. Not mm-hmm. my favorite. Tar is still my number one. I would call this a memory piece. It's told in kind of fragments as the little girl who is played by uh, Frankie Corio. She plays a girl named Sophie. There's also a grown-up version of her at about age 30, kind of looking back to this last vacation she took with her father when she was 11. He's a divorced dad, and they take this vacation, and it's it's she's watching home videos that were taken during the vacation. So most of the film is them on this vacation when he's turning 31 and she's 11. He's a young dad, divorced. This is his time with her. And through the fragments, we get the sense that he he has some mental illness going on. He's trying his hardest for the daughter to give her a good time. And she's kind of experiencing that that 11 to 12-year-old where she's watching so old, older kids uh, kind of engage in kissing. And she's mm-hmm. watching this at the resort and spending time with her dad. And you kind of watch the movie, Ashley, and you're like, what, what's really happening? Where's this going? And it kind of sneaks up on you right at the end. And the last 10 minutes are very emotional, at least for me as a divorced dad of a daughter. Uh, they're very emotional. So I can't I can't say too much about the plot because there's a lot of things that you have to figure out for yourself. When you watch this, you may think, what is really going on? What's the point here? There is a point. It's about, it's about memory. It's about looking back. What are our memories are? What are her memories of her father? Uh, there's some scenes with her. Yeah, like I said, when she's like 30 or 31 years old, my only criticism of the film, I wanted a couple more scenes of Sophie growing up looking back because it's very it's very scattered where she kind of sees her dad at a rave and, and we're not sure if this is real or imagined. So that's, again, kind of left to the audience. Yeah. But I think what not the, things you take your no, kids to. No, no. And she's like 30 and he, he would be 50 then. But oh, I, have, I have a theory about that, but I'm not going to share that because people need to see the movie and kind of decide for themselves. I think it's really a movie about what our parents don't tell us. And so she looks back and sees that her father was struggling with things. We see these in scenes with her and her father. He leaves her alone one time and goes up to the room, and he shouldn't leave her alone there. So he was making some parental mistakes. But I think it's really about what our parents don't share with us. I mean, for as close as we are to our parents— I don't share. I, did, I haven't shared everything in my life with no. my kids. My parents didn't. There's things I'm sure I don't know. We probably share more with friends. You know, a parent is not going to share everything in their deepest, dark secrets with their children. Yeah. And I think that's what it's really about. And so she's looking back as the, at the man that she idolized when she was 11 and the man she didn't know. So that's what I want to tell viewers as they go in. This is available on Prime, YouTube now. Uh, Paul Mescal, very good as as the dad. The, the little girl, Frankie Corio, is very good. Just give it a chance. It's a short movie, but the cinematography is really good. 
Uh, and it really is a sense of I think everyone can relate to this movie yeah. as they look back to their childhood. Well, most people have this sense of idealizing their parents yes. growing up and sort mm-hmm. of the first time you realize like, oh, my parents have faults. And then you're like, oh, my parents have a lot of faults. But then yes. you realize how much they might have been struggling with things right. and just uh, – to sort of recognize how hard it is to be a parent is is really a tricky part of growing up. That's a great point, Ashley, because I think as Sophie looks back, she realizes how hard a job parenting is because when she looks back and now she's 30, she's got a child. Mm-hmm. So there's a scene where she's responding to her baby crying. So that's really what it is, and she's trying to understand her father better. The ending is very touching and very emotional, mm-hmm. and the audience members need to decide what happens with the father at that point. Yeah. Uh, critically acclaimed, uh, has done very well at festivals. Paul Muscal got an acting nomination. It did very well at the BAFTAs as well. Not your typical, you know what I like to, Frankie Corio plays the 11-year-old, not like Hollywood 11-year-olds. <laughs> like in sitcoms when they like know everything and right. they're smart, Alex, she's very contained within herself and it's a very real portrait of an 11-year-old girl, I felt. Not mm. not a Hollywoodized uh, Disney sitcom portrait right. where the kids know everything and yeah. the parents are stupid and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to go back to a phrase you used at the very beginning that the film sneaks up on you. Mm-hmm. And not having seen it myself, I wonder, is it sort of similar to uh, the film The Power of the Dog? That one really sneaked up on me. I did not see the end yeah, of that film different, coming. Different kind of plot, of course. Yeah, but Power but of the just... Dog does sneak up on you with attention. So yeah. when you're watching After Sun... You're wondering what's going on, where's this going? It does sneak up on you. The The final 10 minutes kind of, I think, encapsulates the film, and you finally realize, okay, now I know what Charlotte Wells was going after. Hmm. The film is autobiographical for Charlotte in terms of how she feels looking back. Uh, she said it doesn't really have anything to do with her father or anything like that, but it's more of a memory piece, how she looks back at things. <sighs> What are you doing on Sunday? Watching the Oscars, the ninety-fifth, <laughs> ninety-five years of the Oscars. Wow. And I think this year there's more buzz since before COVID, Ashley. I have a feeling we've gotten past the pandemic. The last two Oscar years, very strange. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel that the quality of the films was was as strong as it could have been in twenty and twenty-one versus twenty nineteen, when when we had Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, nineteen seventeen, and Parasite, three films that big. were best picture yeah. quality. This year, I feel like the 10 films are really an eclectic mix of art films like Tar and Women Talking and Triangle of Sadness and box office hits like Elvis, Avatar, Way of Water, Top Gun, Maverick, and Everything Everywhere All at Once. So yeah, this is like really going to be an interesting, uh, an interesting night. And I'm ready to try to do my <laughs> predictions. Uh, All right. Let's lo- do lots it. Lots to talk about. A <laughs> couple things. Uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once seems to have the zeitgeist right now. It it won the Producers Guild Award and the Directors Guild Award for the co-directors Daniel Kwan and Daniel Sheenert. So I think it's the favorite to win picture and director. I also think uh, K. Kui Han, that is how it pronounces his name, who plays the father, the husband, and Everything Everywhere All at Once will be the winner of Supporting Actor. The other three acting categories is where it gets really tricky. So for Best Actor, Austin Butler won the BAFTA for Elvis. And uh, Brendan Fraser got the Screen Actors Guild Award for The Whale. Now, recent years, the BAFTA has been a better predictor of Oscar victories because there are a lot of BAFTA voters, you know, British actors, Mm -hmm. British directors who vote with the Academy as well. So I'm going to go Austin Butler, but I think it's going to be a really, really close vote. Uh, The sentiment might be behind Brendan Fraser with his big comeback film in The Whale. But I think I'm going to go with Butler because he won the BAFTA and because Elvis is a better film than The Whale. It's up for Best Picture. The Whale is not up for Best Picture. That can be a clue with acting wins. Okay. okay. Actress, if there's ever going to be a tie, this would be the year. Whoa. And a tie is hard to hard to pull off when you got 7,000 people voting in the Academy. Uh, but yeah. Michelle Yeoh for Everything Everywhere All at Once and Kate Blanchett for Tar have been kind of rotating winning awards this season. Kate Blanchett got the BAFTA. Michelle Yeoh got the SAG. So, again, we're back to that same thing okay. with Butler and Fraser. Michelle Yeoh is campaigning heavily for this award. 
she wants it. She wants it badly. I think Blanchett wants it too, even though she has two Oscars already. I'm going to give an ever so slight prediction that Blanchett wins because it's it could be her career best performance, but do not be surprised if Michelle Yeoh wins and do not be surprised if this is a tie. <laughs> it's, what it's, happens in it's a tie? This, they both get it. Then that happened in 1968 okay. where Barbara Streisand and Katherine Hepburn tied and they okay. both they both got awards. So, but do not be surprised if Michelle Yeoh wins. I would not be surprised. Hmm. Well, it would um, open up a few more doors, I think, in the long term too, because yeah, in terms of minority representation, we don't see people like Yeoh, you know, getting Oscars very often. No, Miyoshi Umeki for Sayonara back in 1957 was the first Asian actress or actor to win an Oscar. That was a supporting role in the Marlon Brando film Sayonara. This is a lead role. This is, you know, if you've seen the movie. It's about this family that runs this laundromat. Oh, I enjoyed uh, it a lot. Yeah, it, it's an enjoyable film. It's 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 going to win the editing Oscar. It's going to win the screenplay Oscar. And it could win three acting Oscars, which I'll get to in a minute. So let's get to supporting actors. Okay. This is up for grabs. I <laughs> cannot get a handle on this one, Ashley. For a long time, people thought Angela Bassett was going to win for Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Forever. But she hasn't really racked up the critics' awards for this. And I think Mm. Wakanda Forever is a good Marvel film, but not a great Marvel film. So to me, I didn't walk out of Wakanda Forever going, hey, Angela Bassett's going to win the Oscar. That did not occur to me. So she might be a slight favorite, but Jamie Lee Curtis won the SAG for everything, everywhere, all at once. She's unrecognizable. It took me a half hour to realize that is her as the social worker (laughs) uh, interrogating Michelle Yeoh as to what's going on with Mm -hmm. her life. Um, She got the SAG. Carrie Condon got the BAFTA for Banshees of Inisherin. So again, I'm not quite sure where to go with this. I will lean toward Jamie Lee Curtis winning. Uh, Even though she didn't win the BAFTA, I will predict that she will win barely over Carrie Condon and Angela Bassett. But if Banshees of Inisherin is going to get an award, this is their chance, as Carrie Condon Hmm. who plays Colin Farrell's sister in the movie. If Everything Everywhere All at Once picks up lead actress and supporting actress, let's talk about how often yeah. that happens. Very rarely, and Kay Hui Kwan will win supporting actor. That's a lock. So if Jamie Lee Curtis wins and Michelle Yeoh wins, Everything Everywhere All at Once would become the third film in Oscar history to win three of the four acting awards. Network did it in 1976 and A Streetcar Named Desire in 1951. So this would get it into very rarefied air. I don't think it wins three of them. I think it wins two of them. And I'll go that they win the supporting and and Blanchett barely beats Yo for for lead actress. Another piece of Oscar history, if Kate Blanchett wins... She'll be the fifth actress to win at least three acting awards. Katherine Hepburn, Meryl Streep, Ingrid Bergman, Frances McDormand. Great company. Uh, And Kate Blanchett feels like an actress of the gravitas to join that group. But as I said, Michelle Yeoh is campaigning heavily for this award. And you're right. This could be a moment to anoint uh, a a Malaysian. She's from Malaysia. uh, Born actress as a lead actress winner. What do you mean by campaigning for the award? Uh, she's everywhere. So she's on CBS This Morning. She's interviewed here. She's interviewed there. There's a magazine cover. But Kate Blanchett's campaigning, too. She's at every awards ceremony with Michelle Yeoh. They're chummy. They're hugging each other. They'll be happy for each other if there's (laughs) not a tie. Somebody's got to win this unless they both win. That's what I mean by campaigning. Uh, So it's not, hey, will you vote for me? (laughs) Like two years ago when Anthony Hopkins won for The Father, he didn't come to the Oscars. He was afraid to fly because of COVID, and he won, and he wasn't there, and he was asleep, and he woke up the next morning and, and did a video thing thanking because he thought Chadwick Boseman was going to win, who had just passed away. Mm-hmm. So, But again, Hopkins won the BAFTA that year, and that's, again, the clue that you know, the BAFTA is a very key indicator of Oscar of Oscar victories. And that's why I'm going with Blanchett and Austin Butler. But I'll go against the BAFTAs and go Jamie Lee Curtis for supporting actress. How are you feeling about director and best picture? That Those are locks. Everything, yeah. everywhere, all at once has caught the zeitgeist with the public. I do. I have, I have some friends who didn't like the movie. But I think in general, it, it, it's the film that's going to win. I, I don't see... You know, they do rank choice voting for Best Picture, which is how CODA got it last year, which I did not think was a Best Picture winning film. That being said, I do think everything, everywhere, all at once achieves a kind of interesting 
uh, almost comic book feel, multiverse feel with a lot of great performances. So I think I think it's the film of the moment. And I think it's going to win. Well, let's spend uh, just a little bit of time here talking about Will Smith because mm-hmm. he should be presenting for Best Actress as last year's Best Actor um, because of the slap, the altercation with um, Chris Rock. Yeah. He is not allowed in the building for 10 years. He's not even allowed to vote. To vote, right. And have you heard anything? Do we know? Like They're keeping it secret. I, you know, Jessica Chastain will present Best Actor. Mm-hmm. Ariana DeBose will present Supporting Actor. Troy Kotzer from CODA will present Supporting Actress. I don't know. Uh, I would love, my, my sense is they might pick a Frances McDormand, Meryl Streep type, mm. which would make a lot of sense. Yeah. A, a real, a real great actress who's I mean, won they multiple could ask awards. Chris Rock. They could ask Chris <laughs> Rock to do it. That that could be awkward. Maybe. I don't think they'll do that. Or they could have the last Best Actor winner that's not banned from the Academy do it again. That would be Anthony yeah, Hopkins, Hopkins yeah. 85-year-old Anthony so, Hopkins. I don't know. Yeah, what do you think, <laughs> like, is their best option to just ignore it? Or, like, let's parody it, like, when the time Travolta couldn't say... Um, I think they'll ignore the slap. I think they'll think ignore so. the slap. Jimmy Kimmel might make, make a mention of it in the opening monologue. That's possible. I think after that, I think they'll move move past it. That's my guess. Okay. Matt, the state of North Dakota has lost quite a champion of film. Yeah. Brittany Goodman. She was a friend of yours. She was active on the Fargo Film Festival and the North Dakota Film Society. Yeah, this is just shocking. She was one of my best friends, uh, 56 years old, passed away earlier this week unexpectedly. Uh, And we referred to each other as our movie spouses. Hmm. We went to all kinds of movies together, hit it off immediately when we met each other in 2008 when she joined the Fargo Film Festival. So she was a longtime juror. She rose very quickly through the ranks at the film festival to become a leader. She won the Margie Bailey Volunteer Spirit Award in 2016. She was a member of the North Dakota Film Society. Uh, She's appeared on this show. Many times. Several times, always most recently with Greg Carlson and myself talking about favorite Christmas movies, and she always did her research. So this has been a very hard week for me and for a lot of people that loved Brittany. And, uh, yeah, she's a she really, for someone that really was never trained in movies or anything like that, she had a great instinct for what made a good movie and what made a bad movie. Mm. We almost always agreed on movies. Uh, we served together on juries together. We were going to probably serve next year on the, on the same jury together as well, narrative feature. So, yeah, just a, a big loss and, uh, uh, yeah, just speechless. Yeah. How do you describe just her approach, her personality when it comes to watching a film and, and sort of having a sense of what it's about and, you know, just knowing who's the right person for this film. Yeah, she just had a real instinct for that. I would, I'd watch movies with her many times. I remember we, we were watching Vice with Christian Bale as Dick Cheney, and half hour in, we looked at each other and said, he's going to win the Oscar. Hmm. He didn't, but we should have, because <laughs> uh, it's a phenomenal piece of acting. But we almost hmm. always thought the same thing when we came out of a movie, then went to have a beer to discuss the movie. Um this is a cliche, but she lit up a room. Everyone liked yeah. Brittany. She had so many friends around the Fargo-Moorhead area. She worked at Minnesota State University Moorhead in the library. library so a lot of people over there are in mourning as well. Um, but yeah, friend of Main Street, friend of the film community, uh, Minnesota State University Moorhead employee, just a, just a huge loss for all of us. Well, I am very sorry for your loss Thank and you. uh, for you. the state of North Dakota. I know she was very active on, on bringing people into the yes. state even and yeah. just um, helping to try to push forward this idea that you can make good films here. Yeah, and she was a transplant. She's from Kentucky, and she really made Fargo-Moorhead her home. So, Yeah, well, we'll miss you, Brittany. Thank you, Matt. Yep. Support for Prairie Public is provided by Humanities North Dakota, North Dakota's lifelong learning community. Information about classes and events at humanitiesnd.org. Nicole Chase went to the police to report a sex crime. So my whole life has been flipped upside down. Then a detective starts to question her as if she's the suspect. 
not in a million years would I have thought I was going to get a phone call telling me that I had a warrant out for my arrest. Switching the case on the next Reveal. Reveal coming up Saturday at 1, noon Mountain. This is Dakota Datebook for March 10th. In 1932, North Dakotans were on the alert at a prospect of something big, gold in North Dakota. Earlier in the year, free flake gold was reportedly washing up in the Missouri River near Denby. On this date, mining engineer Dean Purvis declared to Williston residents his belief that it is possible there is gold enough on the Missouri bottoms in the vicinity of Williston to create profitable employment to many men out of work. The prospect of gold from the backyards was a glimmer of hope for some during the Great Depression. But from the beginning, this rush was a bust. Immediately after promising profitable employment, Purvis weakened his claim by sharing an earlier incident of Williston prospectors hoaxed by practical jokers who had meddled with their sand by adding shavings filed from a gold ring. Was there actually gold in North Dakota? A 1937 study from the UND School of Mines found that while gold is definitely present in the glacial gravel deposits from the region, no deposits of commercial value were found. The particles of gold from the Denby area were described as small, well-rounded, pitted, and flat-tended. The lack of commercial viability of the gold in North Dakota is supported by the largest nugget ever found in the state, and it was only twice the size of a grain of wheat. Not everyone shared Dean Purvis's enthusiasm for gold prospecting. The editors at the Mouse River Farmers Press in McHenry County were skeptical, and gave continued coverage to the discovery, boom, and bust in their column, Gold Nuggets. The final sentiment to remember was, at least in North Dakota, if you see something glittering in the sand, not all that glitters is gold. Today's Dakota Date Book was written by Ashley Thronson. I'm Merrill Pepcorn. Dakota Date Book is produced in cooperation with the State Historical Society of North Dakota, with funding by Humanities North Dakota, North Dakota's largest lifelong learning community. On tonight's Legislative Review, Senate Appropriations Committee Chairman Brad Beckett of Williston talks about the upcoming revenue forecast and how that's going to drive spending decisions for the rest of the legislative session. I'm Dave Thompson. Legislative Review, 6.30 p.m. Central, tonight on Prairie Public. That's it for this Friday edition of Main Street. Coming up Monday on the show, turning trauma into art. We hear from North Dakota artist Medora Fry on her book, These Are My Flowers, My Story of Composting Trauma into Colorful Art. It explores cystic fibrosis, a terrible health scare, and some childhood abuse, and how she turns that into poetry and painting. That's coming up Monday on Main Street. Until then, enjoy the rest of your day.